Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, welcome. Sorry, it was a little bit different coming in this evening. I'll uh, explain a little bit more about that uh, in a little bit. But I do want to get into our groups and uh, get as much time with that uh, so we can come back and have time uh, to finish the this section of the uh, epistle to the Ephesians. But if you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're in this section that most scholars, theologians, uh, Bible commentators call the household codes. And it's talking about what uh, life in the household that's filled with the spirit is going to look like, hence my title, The Spirit-Filled Home. Uh, and we're in verse 5, and today we're going to look at all the way through verse 9. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, pray for us, and then uh, we could get into our groups. Uh, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5, slaves, uh, I don't know if that's any of us, but uh, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free." And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word that gives us insight into really all things in life, how all of our relationships are supposed to be. And, uh, and today we're going to look at uh, what our relationship and the workplace should be. And I pray that you would uh, help us to, to see what that is and help us to apply it to our life, Lord. May we be better witnesses for you at work. Uh, I also uh, can't get around the fact that this is addressing slavery and the issues having to do with slavery, Lord. And so I pray today that you would help us to be able to see things like that through your eyes and be better equipped to be able to handle that issue when we talk to people in the world and share the gospel with people. Um, so we, we need your help tonight, Lord. I pray that you would be with us, that you'd speak to us, that you would instruct us, and that you would change us. I pray that we would leave here uh, greater in love with your son and more apt to worship him and serve him and uh, just to be a light for him in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's break off into our groups and kind of a fun topic, right? Uh, talking about slavery and all of that. You know, uh, on Friday, uh, I've been teaching the, the Friday morning's men's breakfast. So I had uh, the end of Daniel 9 and Daniel's 70th week last Friday. And then today we're talking about slavery. So, you know, the easy stuff, I guess. Um but before we get into our study, a couple of things, uh, announcements that I want to make. Um, if you flip your sheet over on the back, I have kind of some happenings, uh, that things that are going on. First one is next week is Halloween. We're exactly one week away from uh, 
more importantly than Halloween, it's Reformation Day. It's the day that the Protestant Reformation kicked off. So I prefer celebrating that. But um, we're having our Hallelujah Fest at church. So obviously we won't be meeting up here. I'll encourage you guys to come to the Hallelujah Fest. They need people to serve still. So if that's something that you want to do, uh, I would highly encourage it. It's a lot of fun. You get to interact with the kids and their costumes and eat some candy and stuff like that. There'll be some excellent food. I think last year they had, uh, I want to say it was tri-tip sliders. They were really good. Uh, and some really good cobbler. I think there was peach and pineapple cobbler. So it's worth coming to. Uh, secondly, um, we have on the schedule our uh, Friendsgiving. We're going to do that on the 21st of November. So it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So um, be thinking about, hey, what do you want to bring? Um, kind of Friendsgiving, the idea is people bring a dish to share with everybody. And uh, we'll, we'll be doing that. Kind of something to keep in your mind. Uh, in December, we'll have a Christmas party. I'm not sure of the exact date that we'll do that yet, but uh, we will. And part of it will be a white elephant gift exchange. We usually do that. Uh, and we cap the gift around $25, so $25 or less. But I would encourage you to keep your eyes out because you could find stuff on sale, things like that in the meantime. And... Uh, that way you don't have to spend a full $25 or however much you want to spend. But uh, that will be coming up. Uh, the last thing I want to mention before we get into the study, uh, I thank you guys for your patience tonight and for coming in the front doors. Uh, when I got here, I was alerted uh, that there's been some chatter, uh, intelligence from the, uh, the police department, the sheriff's department, border patrol, some other agencies that um, there, there could in the coming weeks be possibly some kind of attack here in America like there was in Israel a few weeks ago. That They're kind of trying to plan that and that's what they want to, you know, that's what terrorists want to do. And all that to say is we're doing everything we can to keep you guys as safe as possible and make the church as safe and secure as possible. And so for the time being, we're trying to limit the number of entrances that people could get in, right? They keep it down to one, maybe two doors that are actually unlocked and people could get in. And really we're, we're, we're trying to have no doors unlocked. So they'll be unlocked for a minute <laughs> with security standing there and then we'll lock them. Um, so when you, if you do leave early or, that make sure that the door shuts behind you. Uh, we're hiring some more security, things like that. Uh, Pastor Bob is taking it very serious to make sure that, you know, you're protected and feel safe while you are here. But, um, you know, just be cautious of that. If you see something around here that looks weird, you know, say something and uh, that kind of thing. So any questions regarding that? All right. Well, let's uh, get in to our study for tonight. I guess uh, we'll start. I'll just go ahead and read the passage and pray for us, and then we can get into it. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 6, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart 
with goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slaves or free. And masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And Father, I do thank you that you are our master and you're a good master, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be better servants, better bond servants of you. And I pray that that would extend into the, the workplace, the place of our employment. I pray that we would see that as the ministry that you've called us to and that you would equip us and fill us so that we could be the light that you want us to be there, Lord. I do pray for our workplaces. I pray for the people that my friends here work with. I pray that you would use them to bring those people to your son, Jesus, Lord. I pray that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant upon your return. And a big part of that is is our attitude and the way that we conduct ourselves at work, Lord. So teach us that tonight how to be better servants of you as we serve our bosses that you've put over us in the workplace. We love you. We commit this word, this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our study of the Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we're taking our time. We're going pretty slow. We're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And it seems like every single paragraph that we get to is just pregnant with divine truth that we need to apply to our lives. So it kind of is conducive to this kind of slow and methodical study. I know some of you guys think that we're going super slow through Ephesians and it's taking a long time. Well, hey, I was uh, reading uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his commentary, which is really just a collection of the sermons that he preached to his commentary congregation on the book of Ephesians. And by the time he got to this passage, it was his 189th sermon uh, going through the book of Ephesians. So I guess we're going at lightning pace compared to him. But the past few sessions that we've been in the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at what the scholars and theologians dub as the household codes. How are Christians supposed to obey in the household is the idea. And it it really goes back to chapter 5 and verse 18. And uh, Paul says this, do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Quite literally be being filled with the spirit, he commands us to do. And then he starts giving evidences of what that being filled with the spirit will look like. Uh, We're to be joyful worshipers, right? We're to uh, worship the Lord uh, from our heart, making psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in the heart. And we're to be thankful for all things, right? We're to uh, just be giving thanks for, for everything that happens to us. And so these, these first two aspects of being filled with the Spirit have to do with our relationship with God. It, when we're filled with the Spirit, it's going to affect the way that we relate with God and the way that we worship God and the way that uh, we, we live in light of that. But it's also going to affect the way that we deal with each other. And uh, the next one is, is that we're to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, verse 21 says, right? So, so these are the three evidences that Paul says that will be displayed when we are spirit-filled. And then he starts applying them to 
the home life, right? And, and it's interesting to me that Paul would go there. We would think that he would go to the pulpit or, or maybe go to the mission field or maybe the worship leader. Now, we certainly do need the filling of the Holy Spirit to preach or to do evangelism or missionary work or lead worship and things like that. But that's not where Paul's mind takes them in this passage. It's as if, as, as if Paul says the place that you're going to need to be filled with the Spirit the most is at home. It's going to be in these everyday relationships that you have. That's where you're going to need the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit the most. And it's interesting, right after this, we're going to get into spiritual warfare, what that looks like and how we're to fight it, right? And I would say that's where the spiritual warfare is going to take place the most is in the home, in these relationships around the home. So husbands and wives need the filling of the Spirit to honor the Lord with their marriages. Parents and children both need the filling of the Spirit if the Lord is going to be honored in that relationship. Lastly, slaves and masters or employees or employers need the filling of the Holy Spirit if the Lord is going to be honored in the workplace. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking these first two sets of relationships definitely have to do with the home, the marriage, the family, the kids. But how in the world does the relationship between a slave and a master or a boss and an employee have to do with our home life? I'm glad you guys asked. You know, the other day I was asked how often I think about the Roman Empire. Have you ever been asked that? Right. Well, I, my answer was I think about the Roman Empire every single day. And I pray that you do too. Because if you're a good Bible student and you're trying to interpret the Bible rightly and apply it to your life, then you need to think about it in the context that it was written. And, and the Bible, the, the New Testament, was written in the context of the first century Roman Empire. So every day I'm studying the Bible, I'm processing it through the filter of what the first century Roman Empire was like, what I know about that. And this first century Roman work were, uh, was much different than it is today. Most of the work was done by slaves, and it was done in and around the home. These workers are slaves. They often lived in the home, and they were property of their masters. And they were often treated as, as part of the family unit. Right There, there was relationship going on. And, and I think the point that, that I want to pull out of this for us is that God intends the workplace to be a place where we have relationships with those that we live and work for. Right? God isn't just assembling people together in a place for no reason. It's not just because we all need to get paid and so we all go to the same place. No, God's providentially put you around those people for a reason. And he wants you to have a relationship with them. He wants you to know what's going on in their life, what their family's like, you know, things like that, so that you can minister to them and you can share the gospel with them. But before we get into our text, I, I think it would be good, before we make this 2,000-year leap from the first century Roman Empire to today, uh, to say a few words about slavery in the first century context. The Bible has a lot to say about slavery in both the Old and the New Testaments. Now, it's true, many have looked at texts like the one before us and use it to justify slavery and the mistreatment of other human beings. All throughout the 
chattel slavery that was here in America, people were trying to use the, the Bible as justification for why we should have slaves and why slavery is a good thing and why it's okay for people who go to church to mistreat other human beings the rest of the time that they're not at church. And that shouldn't be the case. Although the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery or any other social institution, it does lift up people in those situations and make sure that they're protected. We see that a lot in the Old Testament. Might I just say this to start, that around where Israel was living, everybody had slaves. Every nation there was was involved with slavery. They had slaves. But God says that the Hebrews were to look at slavery a little bit differently, especially with other Hebrews, right? God was putting limits on the way that they could treat slaves. He was making sure that they were protected, that they had rights. For instance, a Hebrew couldn't be sold into slavery. You couldn't take another Hebrew person and sell them to somebody else. They would have to do it voluntarily. And there was a limit to how long this slavery could last. It was to last six years. Every seventh year, the slave was to go free. There was protections for the slave. If the slave was injured, say the, the master were to knock out his tooth or to injure his eye, the Bible says that that slave would then be set free. He, he would be allowed to go. If the master did something and killed his slave, that master could then face the death penalty himself. In Exodus 21.16, it explicitly outlawed the stealing of other people and selling them. It outlawed kidnapping. It actually gave the death penalty to anybody that would kidnap somebody to sell them into slavery. So the Old Testament, it did so much to give the Hebrew people rights that were slaves and to protect them and to care for them that it was expected that there would be some people that would say, hey, hey, I know my time of servitude is up, but I like you being my master. I want to continue serving in your house forever. And they would become a bond servant, right? They would go, master would take them to the door and they would get an awl and they would pierce their ears, symbolizing that my ear is open to my master. They're showing everybody that, hey, I'm a chosen servant of my master, and this position of bondservant was so exalted, it was actually the relationship that our Lord chose to be the relationship that we relate to him. He's the, the curios and we're the doulos. He's the master and we're the servant, the slave, the bondservant. Slavery under the Romans wasn't quite as nice as it was intended to be in the Old Testament, but it wasn't always horrible either. Uh, by the first century, uh, the slaves had some rights in the Roman Empire. Uh, some say there was as many as 60, 000, or 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery was quite widespread. In fact, the Romans had a really low view of work. They didn't want to do any kind of manual labor or anything like that. All labor was for the slaves. But there was a lot of them, and slaves were had some rights. Like I said, they could own property. They could even own other slaves. They could save up money and purchase their own freedom. Manumission or the reliefs of slaves was frequent. Often slaves could expect to be released by the age of 30, and oftentimes they would gain citizenship as doing so. Uh, it, it wasn't forced, right? It, 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 
people would choose to become slaves. Uh, indentured servitude would probably be a better term. You see, people would choose to become a slave to better their life. Oftentimes, after their mission, they would hold important positions in society and even in government. Remember Felix, the guy who had Paul arrested and, uh, and held in captivity there in Caesarea uh, Maritime in the book of Acts? Well, that Felix was a slave before he became governor. There were slaves of all races and in all positions in society. It wasn't just slaves out in the fields picking cotton. It wasn't just black people. No, it was everybody. And they were often put in charge of raising their master's kids and giving them an education. They could be doctors. Some even think that Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, was Theophilus's slave. Uh, they could be bankers. Oftentimes, the slave was more educated than his master. Slavery, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, though. There was, there was some abuses. we got to remember that masters, they were fallen people. They were corrupt people. They were people that had hearts that were deceitfully wicked and, and, and all that, too. So they would find the worst ways to use these relationships, just like the marriage relationship is abused, and people have to suffer the consequences of that. There was, you know, abuse and the slave world as well. There was this position called the familia paterna. And it was kind of like the patriarch of the family. And he was in charge of everything having to do with the family. He could actually have his kids killed at any age, and there would be no punishment for him. He had complete authority over even his children. And if he could treat his kids that way, you got to expect that he could treat his slaves however he wanted as well. One Roman writer divided agricultural instruments into three classes. There was the articulate, who were the slaves, the inarticulate, which were the animals, and the mute, which were the tools and vehicles. You see, a slave's only distinction above animals or tools is that he could speak. The Roman statement Cato said this of slaves, old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It's not worth your money. Take six slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but insufficient tools. Augustus, Augustus Caesar said this. Augustus Caesar actually once crucified his slave because he accidentally killed his pet quail. And a man named Polio threw his slave into a pond of deadly uh, lamprey eels for breaking a crystal goblet. So, so these masters, if their slave did something, they could, uh, you know, punish them with these exorbitant punishments, you know, for even the most uh, simple uh, accident. Juvenile wrote of a slave whose owner's uh, great pleasure was listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged. So, so yeah, there were abuses. There were masters that you know, didn't treat their slaves the way that you would want to. We may think of the workplace as a place to earn a paycheck. Uh, work is so much more than that, according to the Bible. Our work is our ministry, is the reality. Whether you're a slave for a master in the first century world, or you're working today in an office, or, or wherever you are, 
you need to see that God has placed you there as your ministry. It's a place for witness. It's a place for growth. And at the heart of this fact is we need to see that there's no difference between the secular and the sacred, right? Everything's sacred to God. We tend to think that maybe a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader, that they have a calling on their life, right? That God has called that person to some specific task. And that's true. But it's also true that every single Christian there is has a calling on their life. Wherever you are, wherever you're working, wherever God has placed you in this world, it's that's your calling. You're to honor God. You're to serve God. You're to use that to make God known. So every occupation is an opportunity to serve the Lord and make him known. You know, during the Protestant Reformation, there was this term coined called the Protestant work ethic because Christians worked in a way that was so different from those before them. Uh, Before that, the Catholics, they had their work ethic, and it was you had to work hard. You had to do good work so you could earn your salvation. You you could make people respect you. You You could earn your way into heaven is the idea. You could gain status in the church. Well, the Protestant Reformation happened and people started realizing, no, we can't earn our salvation. We can't do anything to earn any kind of merit before God. We're saved by grace through faith. Salvation is a free gift from God. But the way that we live out that free gift is by doing the best we can, serving God, trying to honor God and working hard, serving one another, blessing one another, trying to make each other's lives better. And because of that, production increased exponentially. In fact, in the 500 years since the Reformation, the countries that have done the best financially are the countries that have the highest number of Protestants in them, the highest number of born-again believers. And I believe that's because of their work ethic and God's blessing upon them. But the first thing we need to realize is that we are all equal in Christ. So fill in the word equal. You know, there's this weird paradox in Christ. On one hand, we're, we're all free, right? Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom, Paul says. But in another reality, we're all slaves. We're, we're bond servants of Christ. Paul actually captures both of these in 1 Corinthians 7.22. He says, for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while is free is Christ's slave. So simultaneously, we're free, but we're also slaves. And and this is, is only speaking really of our being in the flesh, in the natural world, in the church, in the kingdom, in the spiritual realm. We're, we're all the exact same. There's no distinction between Greek and Jew between male and female, between slave and free man, Paul says in Galatians 3.28. It wouldn't be hard uh, for this scenario to have taken place in the first century where, uh, you know, one guy has a bunch of slaves in his house, but when they went to the church, the slave was actually the pastor of the church, and the master is sitting underneath the slave in the church setting because In the spiritual realm, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. There's a great little postcard epistle towards the end of the New Testament called Philemon. Philemon was a letter uh, written 
to this guy named Philemon by Paul. Paul and Philemon were friends. They were Christians. And Philemon was a guy who had slaves. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus. And Onesimus, for whatever reason, we're not told, ran away from Philemon. And by God's providence and his running away from Philemon, he runs into the apostle Paul. He hears the gospel, he gets saved, and, and, and he just latches on to Paul. Paul starts discipling, he starts growing, he starts doing ministry with Paul. And then Paul realizes this. He finds out that this guy was once a slave, and a slave of his friend Philemon. And so he says, hey, no, Onesimus, I would love to have you here. I'd love to have you serving with me, but you belong to Philemon. You're his property. You're his slave. You need to go back. You need to honor that relationship in the flesh. However, I'm going to send you with this letter. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon. That's what we have at the end of our Bible. And he tells Philemon not just to receive him back as a slave, but more than that, as a brother. Right? It doesn't matter what you do for your job, things like that. Oh, we are all one family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to treat each other that way. Right? The, the person who's in charge of the business has the, you know, all the money in the world, all the position, the power, and things like that isn't supposed to treat the janitor badly. Right? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ is the idea. Letter A, slaves or employees, do your work as unto the Lord. Fill in the word Lord. Now in verses uh, 5 through 8, or let me go ahead and read those again. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. You know, we need to realize who we really work for. Some of us need a, a new boss in all reality. We, we need to change bosses. Now, I'm not telling you to quit your job or to transfer positions. No, I'm encouraging you to change your perspective on who it is you actually work for. I'm encouraging you every day to realize that you're going to work for the Lord Jesus Christ, not necessarily the person that you call your boss. When we look at these verses that I just read, we realize that they're ex extremely Christocentric. Christ is the focus of every single one of these verses. It's really all about Christ. In fact, in each verse, Jesus Christ is mentioned. In verse 5, we're to do it as to Christ. In verse 6, as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, receive this back from the Lord. Colossians 3.23, kind of the parallel passage that, to the one that we're looking at here in Ephesians, says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than to man. So when you go to work, you may think so-and-so is your boss, but in reality, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's our boss. And, and we need to work for that person enthusiastically. We, we need to enthusiastically do whatever it is that we're asked to do. This word enthusiasm comes from the Greek phrase in theos, or full of God. Right? If we're full of God, if we're full of the Spirit, we're going to 
enthusiastically do what our boss tells us to do. And this passage is really about the fact that, that we work for Jesus, that Jesus is our boss. And in the next few verses, we're going to see four ways that this uh, fact uh, that we work for Jesus should change our lives, really. We're going to see four ways that this should impact the way that we work. Number one, we need to honor God by honoring our boss. So fill in the word boss. Look at verse 5. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. You know, when we looked at the husband and wife relationship, we saw that the wife was to submit to her husband as to the Lord. Children were to obey their parents in the Lord. Here in verse 5, slaves or employees are to be obedient to their masters as to Christ. In other words, a slave's obedience or submission to their boss is part of their submission and obedience to Christ. The way that you're going to show submission to Jesus is by showing submission to your boss. And Paul says that we're to obey in fear and trembling. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be afraid of our bosses. Fear and trembling is language that describes our relationship with God. It, it really does. We need to see obeying our bosses as an opportunity to obey God. You see, we really need to get a new perspective on authority. Our culture looks down upon authority in a really big way. In fact, I, I think most people in our culture think the word authority is kind of a bad word. Right? They just cringe at hearing that there's some kind of authority over their life. They want to be the captain of their own ship. Right? They want to be in charge. They want to do what they want to do. But the Bible doesn't view authority that way. The Bible says all authority is placed there, placed there by God, and it's for our good. It's for our joy. But you say, my boss is awful. He's abusive. How can my submission to him be for my good? I love what John Corson said concerning this. This is what he said. He said, David had a brutal boss. While he played his harp, King Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, not once or twice, but three times. Realizing his services were not wanted, David headed to the caves of En Gedi. Saul, in turn, gathered an army of 3,000 to chase him down. When Saul inadvertently took a nap in the very cave in which David was hiding, David's men were overjoyed. God has delivered Saul into your hand, they said. Now you can chop off his head. Instead, David did nothing more than cut off a piece of Saul's garment. But even then, Scripture says David's heart smote him. David shows us that he saw Saul as God's instrument in his life to produce patience, maturity, compassion, and greater dependence upon God within him. Here's the question. Have you clipped the garment of your boss, of your teacher, of your parents? They're God's instruments, anointed ones in your life to develop depth, character, and maturity in you. Lop off their heads by launching a rebellion or losing your temper, finding fault within or gossiping about them, and you will forfeit what, what God wants to do for you and through you. You might not respect the person in authority over you, but you must respect his position because God has put him in your life. Lap off the skirts of the people in authority over you, and you will stunt, retard, and cripple that which God wants to do for you. 
but be like David and say, forgive me. I will never do that again, and God will honor you. I think that is so well said. Maybe God has given you an awful boss, a boss that you can't really respect, so that he could change your character by submitting to him. By the way, this authority your boss has is in the flesh. That's what Paul says. In the flesh, meaning it's temporary. It's not going to go on forever. You're not going to have endless opportunities to honor your boss. You're not going to have endless opportunities to be obedient to your abusive boss. And that's really how we need to see this. We need to see it as an opportunity to express faith. That's exactly what Peter says it was in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. He says, for this finds favor, it finds literally grace. For if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there? When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, it, it, suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor, this finds grace with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Oh, that that would be our attitude. You know who had a brutal and unfair boss? Daniel did. Daniel's boss was Nebuchadnezzar. For, for 70 years, Daniel worked for Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this. Nebuchadnezzar was the type of guy that if you couldn't tell him what your dream, what his dream was, he was going to kill you. If you wouldn't bow down to the statue made in his image, he was going to take you and throw you into the fiery furnace. That's how awful of a boss Nebuchadnezzar was. But Daniel kept faithfully serving Nebuchadnezzar day after day after day after day. And you know what happened? Daniel chapter 4 happened. Daniel chapter 4 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, which just blows my mind. Daniel chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king. He got the right scripture. And it's his testimony of how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and got saved. That was mind-blowing. And I have to think part of that was from Daniel's faithful service and submission to his brutal and unfair boss. How do I practically treat my boss like he or she is Jesus, you ask? Well, there's many ways we could do that. If you're a homemaker, make your home like Jesus lives in it. If you're a chef, prepare meals like Jesus is going to eat them. If you're an accountant, balance the books as if they're Jesus's books. If you're a carpenter, build like you're building Jesus's home. If you're an Uber driver, drive like Jesus is your passenger. That's the idea. Whatever work you're doing, do it like you're doing it unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number two, put your heart into your work. Fill in the word heart. In verse five, we are to obey in the sincerity of our heart. Verse six, we're to do the will of God from 
the heart. Verse 7, with good will, we are to re- render service as to the Lord. In other words, from the heart, from the decision of the heart, we're to serve. From the innermost being, it's, it's our delight to serve is the idea. You know, when we were saved, God took the heart of stone that we have and he removed it. He gave us a heart of flesh. And we need to evidence that by the way that we work. See, we shouldn't have to be poked and prodded to do our work. It should be the delight of our inner being to serve the Lord by doing our job. By the way, we should never speak ill of our bosses. Resist that temptation. Right? Learn to see them as someone that God has sovereignly placed in your life to accomplish his purposes in your life. Whenever I hear someone bad-mouthing their boss, I just cringe. I, I, I don't want to talk to them anymore because I know that that is so against the will of God. Point number three, don't bring hypocrisy to the workplace. Uh, fill in the word hypocrisy. Verse 6 says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He says, not by eye service as men pleasers. How many people can you think of that at work, they work differently when the boss is around than when he's not? Probably just about everybody, right? That's kind of typically what we do. Hey, the boss is coming. I better start working hard. I better start working good. I mean, that was even one of Jesus' sermon illustrations at the end of the Olivet Discourse. He's talked about the guy whose master put him in charge of the household, and then the master went away, and the guy said, hey, my master went away. He's not coming back for six months. So he started getting drunk and beating up the other servants, and the master returned when he wasn't ready. And Jesus is like, what's that master going to do? He says he's going to kick that slave out and get somebody else to be in his place. So it's just kind of natural instinct to work harder when the boss is around than when he's not. And Paul's saying, don't be like that. Right? You need to work the same all the time. You need to work like your boss is watching all the time because your boss really is watching all the time. You know, this morning I did a little bit of research on how much time employees waste where the boss isn't looking. <laughs> it was pretty astonishing. It really was. You know, the average employee in America admits to wasting three hours every eight-hour workday. That's almost half the day. The waste time, they waste time by surfing the web, socializing with coworkers, spacing out. 1.3% of the people say they waste time by applying for other jobs while they're on the clock. Now, the 18 hours a week wasted by each employee that amounts to $759 billion of lost production every year. That's $50 billion more than our annual defense budget was at the time of the survey. 60% of all Amazon purchases are made while people are working, or supposedly working. 65% of all YouTube viewership happens between 9 and 5 when you're supposed to be working. During football season... Businesses lose $10.5 billion a year now because of fantasy football. 39% of employees say they would quit their jobs if they weren't allowed to be on their phones during work. I mean, this is kind of shocking, 
right? I mean, that's how wasteful we are. But can I tell you something encouraging? I mean, your boss, Jesus, in heaven, he's always watching. He's always looking. There's always an opportunity to do right by him, to earn rewards with him. Nothing that you do will be wasted for him. So every minute is an opportunity to serve him, to worship him, to honor him, to bring glory to him. Don't waste that. Don't waste those opportunities. Number four, know that the Lord will reward your faithfulness. Fill in the word Lord and reward. Verse eight says, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. You know, you may not get that bump in pay that you desire or get that promotion and that big bonus, but the Lord will reward you. He will, I promise you. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Maybe your reward is a peace of mind, knowing that you did things the right way. Not having to worry about, hey, if your boss asks, hey, did you get that finished yesterday? Oh, I don't know, you know, well, this and this happened. Knowing him, I just, I did my job. I don't have to worry about making an excuse tomorrow. Maybe your reward will be God's presence. Knowing that the Lord is with you and that, that he's, uh, you know, and you have his presence each and every day as you're working. Maybe your reward will be the souls who see your faith and, and get saved and, and are there to welcome you with that abundance entrance into heaven. Maybe it will be a promotion and increased pay. I don't know, but the Lord will reward you. I've known many that put this Protestant work ethic that I was talking about to a test. Some of my friends started at the lowest position possible in the company, but they were faithful. They served the Lord the best they could each and every day. And it didn't take long. They stood out so much that within months they were in supervisory positions. They were getting increases in pay. They were getting the recognition that they wanted because good help is really hard to find. And if you come and you don't waste that three hours a day like everybody else does, people are going to see that. <laughs> and they're going to, you know, they're going to promote you. They're going to put you into that position that you desire. You know, there was a story I heard of this elderly missionary couple. They were actually missionaries to this African tribe in the jungle of Africa. They went there, they spent 40 years there, and they just laid down their lives for the people of that tribe. They did. They served them in every way that they possibly could think of. They, they, they gave them a translation of the New Testament. I mean, they, they really poured their lives out for these people. But it was time for them to retire, and so they were coming home. And they were on this cruise ship back from Africa. And they were surprised. They found out that Teddy Roosevelt, the president at the time, was on the same cruise ship. And they're like, hey, that's kind of cool. I guess Teddy Roosevelt had gone to Africa on this big game hunt and had killed a rhinoceros and an elephant. And he was coming back. And they're standing there on the, the boat. And, and they see just crowds and crowds of people uh, excited and celebrating because Teddy Roosevelt is returning from his big game hunt and he had killed an elephant and a rhinoceros and they were all excited about that. And one by one, everybody gets off the ship and finally this missionary couple, you know, they had kind of the, were sleeping in the, 
the you know the deck or whatever the last ones to get off the boat and everybody was gone there was no reception for them and they left they got in a taxi and went home and the guy says to his wife he goes you know i'm a little bitter we for 40 years poured out our life in africa and nobody cares but Teddy Roosevelt went on this little hunt, and there's, everybody's all hooping and hollering for him because he returned to America. Well, that night, as he was about to go to bed, he was praying, and the Lord told him this. He said, you know what? You haven't gotten your reward yet because you're not home yet. Just wait till you get home. Just wait till you see the abundant interest that is there for you. You know, maybe you'll have to wait till you get to the Bema seat to receive your reward. I don't think that would be so bad, right? Because those rewards are forever. Those rewards are eternal. Isn't that where we're supposed to be storing up our treasures anyways, is in heaven? So if we have to wait to heaven to get our rewards and they're eternal, I think that's even better. Paul says this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the, budget, the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Right? We will be rewarded for one day for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In this last verse, in verse 9, he's going to shift his focus to the master's. So for letter B, masters or bosses are to exemplify servant leadership. Fill in the word servant. This idea of, I guess I should read the verse. It says, and masters, and do the same things to them, not, and give up threatening, knowing that both your, their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You know, this passage right here, verse 9, uh, for the master, it really is all about servant leadership. The, the, the employee submits to his boss's demand, and the boss submits to his employee's need. There's this mutual submission that chapter 5, verse 21 calls for. Think how radical these words would have sound to a first century slave owner. Think how great a witness this practice would have been before the first century world. If you think about it, though, today, it really isn't that much different, right? There's great animosity between worker and management today. But if bosses can see their workplace as an opportunity for the gospel, they can do really great things for the Lord's kingdom. One of my best friends was this guy named Steve. Or he is this guy named Steve. And he's the first person who really discipled me when I came to Christ. His family, they were pretty well off. They owned multiple car dealerships. And he was the general manager of the biggest one. And he decided that he wanted his store to be about the gospel. He really did. He wanted to make it a place where evangelism and discipleship happened. He, he, he would regularly have Bible studies at his work. He'd include Bible verses on his emails that he'd send out, you know, to his employees. He'd purposely hire people that weren't believers that so that he could share the gospel with them and bring them to faith. He would take new employees out to lunch and, you know, and share the gospel with them and try to 
share the word of God with them and try to evangelize them. I mean, it was just really amazing when you think about it. It was an incredible witness. But he also had this, this tension. You see, the lawyers of the company were continually cautioning him that he couldn't do these things because some employee might be offended and, and sue, and they would lose money, possibly lose the business. However, Stan, Steve remained, guess what? Or he, he remained steadfast to what he was doing. He's like, I don't care. I'm just going to keep doing this. I feel like the Lord's called me to do this. This is what my heart is telling me to do, and I'm going to keep doing it. And guess what? The Lord blessed him greatly. I mean, just greatly blessed him, right? He protected his business. Uh, he had record sales. They were able to retain their employees, which is a really hard thing to do in the uh, car business world. His employees stayed with him a long time, so they became really productive. He didn't have to continually hire people and train them. But if you ask Steve what the greatest blessing was, it was seeing many of his employees get saved. Not only did they get saved, but they blossomed into great employees who could earn a great living for their families. And by the time that Steve's family had to sell the business, many of these employees got senior management positions of their own, and then they took on the task of evangelizing and discipling the employees that worked for them. They continued to do what Steve was doing because that was the model that was shown to them. Now, that's just one guy taking it upon himself to take the priorities and the principles in this passage and apply it to his workplace. And I saw just amazing things happen. I saw dozens and dozens of people get saved and, and all of that. You know, imagine if every Christian boss, every Christian business owner started doing that. Imagine how fast our society, how fast our, our cities would be transformed and these evils in the city that we don't like would be changed. And it's because of servant leadership, like my friend Steve exhibited. But what does this kind of servant leadership look like? First, we need to submit to the needs of your employees. So fill in the word submit. It says in the text, and masters do the same things. So everything that the employee was called to do, the master is called to do the same. You know, when you read this at first, it might seem like the bosses get off kind of easy, right? There's four verses for the employees and only one verse for the employer. But when we really examine it, that's not true. Because we see that everything that was for the employee is also for the employer. So it's four verses for the employee and five verses for the master. You see, as a master or as a boss, you need to realize God is calling your employees, or you need to realize what God is calling your employees to do, and you need to create an environment that helps them to do that. And we need to create environments that facilitates our employees wanting to serve and honor us in a way that honors the Lord. Point number two, we need to use the carrot and not the stick, throwing carrot and stick. Paul says that we need to give up threatenings. You know, the apprentice made for great entertainment, but it probably made for a horrible place to work. Right? If you're constantly worried about hearing, you're fired, you know, I mean, it, that's, that's not the way to want to work. Right? I mean, people must have been really on edge working in that environment. 
You know, I used to manage a gym and there were many employees on my team. And I can't remember one instance where threatening to fire them or threatening something else with them actually improved their productivity. And it actually did the opposite. And that's so not the way of the kingdom. It really isn't. Right? What does Paul say in Romans 8? He says, therefore, there is, now the, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? God's not threatening us. Oh, you messed up. I'm going to take away your salvation or I'm going to really spank you. No. You see, the kingdom, in the kingdom, the motivation is, is service. It's never threatening. Right? The motivation is cooperation in the kingdom enterprise. We, we get to be co-laborers with Christ. We get to participate in what Christ is doing. You, you see, the motivation is always positive. It's never negative. I've routinely found that people act the way that you treat them. If you treat them like little kids, they're going to act like little kids. If you respect them and give them opportunities, they'll work to display the fact that they are worthy of said opportunities and respect. So as bosses, as people that are uh, in charge of other people, we need to think about that. And, and we need to foster that kind of attitude in the people that God has placed us over. But point number three, we need to realize that you have a master in reality aren't much different than your employee. So fill in master and employee. We see in our text, he says, uh, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You see, both the employee and the employer have to answer to somebody. It's not like there's nobody that the employer has to answer to. You know, if you are an employer, you need to take into account that God has given you a responsibility. And you're going to have to answer to him for the way that you used that privilege that he's put in your life, that amount of power. Your title and your privilege here on earth, they have nothing. They're not going to do anything for you before God. God has not a respecter of persons. He can care less what your title is. He can care less what your position is. He can care less what kind of business you had. What he cares about is how did you treat the people that he placed under you? I'd say this too. If you're in the market for a job, you should consider these things, right? You, you should uh, look for a boss or an employer that you can obey, somebody that you could submit to. Is this the place where I could live out my faith in Jesus? Does this possible employer exhibit these qualities in verse 9? That should be more important than what kind of paycheck can I get? Jesus said this in the Sermon of the Mount, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will be accounted to you. God's going to take care of you. He's going to give you what you need. The Bible says that his, his children don't beg for bread in the streets. No, he provides. He's a good, loving father. So instead of seeking the, the pig and seeking the raises and seeking the position, seek the place where you can live out your faith in Christ. Seek the place where you can honor God. Seek the place where you could actually submit to your boss in good conscience. One application as we close here. Uh, remain gospel focused as the gospel is the power for transformation. So fill in gospel and gospel. And I want to end with this thought. Right, because we're often asked about slavery in the Bible. 
right? Why doesn't the New Testament condemn slavery? Why didn't Paul ban slavery outright? Things like that. But the slavery wasn't outrightly condemned in Scripture. No, that's not the way that the New Testament authors attacked it. Right? They, they didn't try to, uh, to, to beat it from without. They tried to beat it from within. As hearts were changed by the gospel, uh, bosses started to realize that slavery wasn't congruent with the gospel. As the politicians and leaders began getting saved by the preaching of the gospel, the laws began to change. That was the reality. It, it wasn't until Christianity came into different places that slavery began to fall. And it wasn't because they were out trying to end slavery. It was because they were preaching Christ. The gospel was going forth. The spirit was regenerating people. And these changed hearts, these changed lives, made it impossible for things like slavery to exist. You see, if the social laws are changed, but the hearts aren't, people just find other ways to abuse and take advantage of each other. That's the problem with the social justice movement today. It puts the cart ahead of the horse, and it actually becomes a form of idolatry. If you think about it, if we're putting ending racism or ending slavery or ending whatever it is above honoring and serving God, that becomes an idol. That becomes our God. So we need to put the gospel first. We need to put honoring, seeking God first, and all these other things will be taken care of. You see, God's program treats the root problem, not just the symptom. It changes the heart, which then changes the behavior. You know, may we never forget that we have the ability to display this power in the workplace. Who knows? Maybe your faithfulness as an employer, as an employer, is the spark that's going to transform your entire workplace. Maybe the place that you work is an awful place to work. It really is. But God's going to use your faithfulness, your witness, and the power of the Spirit within you to completely transform it and to turn it into a great place, to turn it into a place of salvation for many people. Amen? So God, we do thank you. I thank you that you saved each and every one of us out of slavery, that you've set us free, Lord. But you've also called us to be your slaves, to be your bondservant. May we live in that paradox well. Lord, I pray that we would be the best employees there is on the planet Earth, that we would do our work in honor to honor you, Lord, and, and that we would be a great witness in the workplace. I'm thankful that you've placed authorities in our life, Lord. May we learn how to honor those authorities and how to submit to those authorities. May we learn that you've placed those authorities there to change us, to conform us into the image of your son, Lord. So teach us how to be submissive. Fill us with your spirit. We want to experience your power. We want to be used of you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.